0: As has been mentioned several times this morning already, how blessed it is that God has allowed us to assemble so richly showering upon us the privilege of this first day of the week that you and I can come together and worship in spirit and in truth, and it's our sole desire, in fact, to do that this morning. As I look over the audience, we know there are many who are sick and unable to be with us, and for them, of course, we hope that all is much, much better for them very soon. It is the case that as we continue our journey, our reading through the Holy Scriptures this year, as you probably can well tell from being in the midst of December, we're awfully close. Some 95% of the totality of the Scriptures completed. Some 1,129 chapters up to the end of the day yesterday. It is having come to this point in the New Testament, we're now reading in the book of Revelation, the 27th and final book in the New Testament. The lesson this evening, as you and I read the Old Testament, will be taken from Zechariah. So I hope that you have already made plans to be with us tonight. Not only the attitude of considering that message from the Word of God, but to sing and to engage in prayer and proper fellowship with God. What a blessed occasion it shall be this evening. To the angel of the church at Pippin, I'm sure many of us have often wondered that if the Lord Jesus Christ were to pen a letter to a particular congregation, as He did in the book of Revelation, what might it say? What tone might it carry? What message might it bring? Today, you and I are going to spend the next few moments and ask if He had penned a letter directly to Pippin, what would it have said? I'm sure all of us will have a time of profound reflection a time of serious inward consideration, because after all, that's a serious matter. These opening comments bring us to appreciate this the book of Revelation. You and I know there are 27 books in the New Testament. The first four of them are the, are the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There is a single New Testament book of history, that book of Acts, that sets before us the grandeur of the establishment of the church, how to become a Christian. And then there are 21 books, Romans through Jew, that tell us how to live day by day as a Christian. There's only one book remaining, the book of Revelation. Its message, how to die in Christ, how to leave this world and go home to glory. No wonder the book of Revelation is such a book of victory, a book of triumph, a book of hope, a book of assurance. The opening chapters in the Revelation will be our focus this morning. As you can well tell, what a blessing is pronounced in Revelation 1 verse 3 on those who read it, those who keep it, and those, of course, who give attention to that which it says. I trust that all of us are of that, my, that frame of mind. It is with those things in mind. Why don't we then set the stage for what's to follow by appreciating that these first three chapters of Revelation set before us in many specifics details of letters that were written to seven churches in Asia. In Revelation 1 verse 11, Jesus Himself said, John, what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches that be in Asia. And at that point, immediately the Lord lists those congregations that were that He had in mind. The church at Ephesus, the church at Smyrna, the church at Pergamos, the church at Thyatira, the church at Sardis, the church at Philadelphia, and the church at Laodicea. Seven congregations, and that's by no means a statement that that's only how many congregations there were in Asia because you and I have other New Testament references. There were churches, for instance, in Colossae. There's a New Testament book written to that congregation. And there are even many others as well. It would appear that these seven were selected as representative of important messages with timeless character that you and I should even appreciate today. The timeless character of the Word of God. How many churches of today would have a problem that would at least resemble one of the problems that were faced by these seven congregations? What about the church at Pippin? Do you and I experience an issue, a difficulty, a matter that might at least remind us of something that was told to one of these congregations 1900 and some odd years ago. It might well be, as you then proceed to notice, John, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 1, John, what you see right in a book, John said, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and there was one in the midst of them, like unto the Son of Man. He proceeded to describe that which he saw in the midst of those golden candlesticks, and that which he saw was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. As John saw those golden candlesticks, you and I are quickly identified. He again is in the midst of them. Jesus Himself is the centerpiece, of course, of the church. He must be. He is its foundation, as we noticed in our class this morning in the auditorium, 1 Corinthians 3.11. By the same token, He's also its head, Colossians 1.18. Furthermore, He directs fully and completely her doctrine in every detail. It is then the case that as this opening chapter closes, two other final remarks. We notice in the right hand of this Son of Man, the one again surrounded by these these seven golden candlesticks, seven stars. And those stars, of course, are representative of those angels or messengers carrying the information. Lord, what would you have these congregations to know? What message do you want to send them? At that point, everything begins. The next two chapters detail the seven messages to those congregations. You and I will use them as the basis for our lesson this morning, but along the way we shall ask, what if he had written a letter to Pippin, to the angel of the church at Pippin? What would the Lord say to you and me today? What kind of commendations would he give, if any? What kind of rebuke would he give? What would he demand that you and I change? What would he have to say about attitude? Again, to the angel of the church at Pippin. It is with those things in mind that might we at least observe this. It appears that there are certain things that we can be assured that would appear in that letter. For after all, all seven of these letters contained some things that were common. In other words, there were certain things he told every one of them. I have no doubt, and I'm sure none of us do, that he would also tell you and me that, or at least make that observation. And why don't we then begin this way. All seven congregations were told these four four words, I know thy works. I've even listed the verses at which those statements are found. Isn't it thus easy to conclude that there's not anything that should be concealed or hidden to him because he knows it all? The church at Smyrna, the church at Ephesus, and yea, even the five others, he said, I know thy works. In fact, as we notice carefully the things that are contained in those letters, it's not that he knew only the physical things they did. It was clear he also knew the reactions and the considerations of their hearts. After all, he told Ephesus, you've left your first love. He told Sardis, you've got a name that you live, but you're dead. He knew the intent, the fullness, the character of what they were, their intents, and what they claimed to be. One of the first things then you and I can know for sure is, in a letter written to the Pippin, he'd say, I know your works. As you and I give thought to that, notice how many other thoughts in the New Testament set before us the urgency of that same consideration. In Hebrews 4.13, we're reminded on that occasion, are we not? There's nothing hidden to Him, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight. But all things are naked and open unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. As you and I can well tell then, It might be easy sometimes to put on a show for somebody else. You and I are different than what we portray to them. The Lord knows our heart. He knows exactly the kind of person we are. And He knows the kind of church that we are too. It is true in light of that, isn't it a shame, how much time sometimes can be wasted by trying to put on that show. After all, how futile it is. The Lord knows exactly what the way you and I are. There's something else though that's clear in that it's in every one of these seven letters. Not only does He know thy works, notice, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Every one of the letters closes that way. Again, I've listed for your consideration the verses at which those statements are found. Doesn't that also highlight the following? What an unsurpassed importance it is to give heed to what the Spirit says, to give attention to what the Scripture declares. These congregations were expressly told, if you've got an ear, use it to hear what the Spirit has to say. Might you and I give quick appreciation to the grandeur of these messages? Sometimes they're harsh, and sometimes they're very pointed and very straightforward, but what a blessing it is to hear and to make the necessary changes. You and I often call that repentance, don't we? And how often the New Testament calls it so, as you can well tell, there's some one other thing that appears so common to all seven of these letters. All seven of them include matters of blessing and matters of punishment. Every one of them has within it. If you will follow the dictates of the Spirit, these are the blessings that you will experience. To one congregation it was, you shall enter the paradise of God. To another one it was, you'll come over and live with me. To another it was, the fantastic blessing of having the name of God on your forehead. Be that as it may. What a great blessing it is to be affiliated with Him and of course be in heaven. But by the same token, in every essence at which it was important, punishments were delivered. If you continue to walk in this way of sinfulness, notice some of the things stated. I would only ask you to notice some of the language. What if the church at Ephesus failed in their repentance? Note verse number 5 of Revelation 2. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else... I will come unto thee quickly and will remove the candlestick out of his place. Ephesus, if you will repent, that candlestick will remain. But if you do not, I will remove that candlestick. Notice another congregation appreciating again what happens when failure is not there for repentance. Chapter number 3, verse number 18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. The church at Laodicea. One by one, we notice the statements given, and the punishments sometimes were very bothersome and should have been. It is with all that in mind, we close that slide and turn our attention to some additional features what else might he say to you and me at Pippin we've identified I know thy works and so nothing is concealed from him and he that hath an ear let him hear Here are some thoughts as I use these I simply strove to take from these particular letters features that were obviously very important and features that were obviously of great import I simply present these as the Bible does as matters of warning. I'm not insinuating that there are in the present being issues with these, but notice how strong the warning is. First of all, consider this with me. You notice that at least two of these congregations had problems with false doctrine the church at Pergamos and the church at Thyatira. In fact, it seems had great difficulties surrounding doctrine that was taught that itself was not true. You might notice particularly chapter number 2, verses 13 and following, the church at Pergamos, and chapter number 2, verses 18 and following, the church at Thyatira. I've even listed some of the details. These doctrines are called by name. They in Pergamos, in fact, lifted up or at least tolerated those that taught the doctrine of Balaam. Those at Thyatira, it seems, also did something similar. You'll also notice that mention is made of the Nicolaitanes. Often as you and I read the Revelation, we wonder about that ancient doctrine. Whatever it was, it was exceedingly displeasing to God. Notice it's mentioned in light of the church at Ephesus. It's mentioned again in light of the congregation at Pergamos. Whatever this doctrine was, God says, I hate it. Doesn't that point out very clearly? As you can see in the statement beneath it, doctrine is extraordinarily important. It has ever been so. There are occasions, no doubt, in which you and I appreciate some give lesser significance to it, as if it's relatively unimportant. But notice, these congregations of the ancient era, due to doctrine, they found themselves on the short end of favor with God. Speaking of doctrine, preach the word, Paul told Timothy. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. There's that word doctrine. Paul especially told Timothy, preach the Word. The doctrine that was to fill the pulpit there at Ephesus where Timothy was, was none other than the doctrine of Scripture. In 1 Timothy 4 verse 13, give attention to reading and to doctrine. Should you and I then make certain to give great care to the doctrine that's proclaimed from the pulpit and classes and what you and I then uphold and believe individually? Sure we must You'll also notice in light of that statement, 1 Timothy 4.16, brings us to appreciate as well that beautiful statement again made to Timothy. Timothy, if you are a faithful soldier giving heed and making certain to proclaim that which is the doctrine of God, not only will you save yourself, but you'll save those that hear you. You and I as Christians are open examples of the true doctrine of God That blessing is indeed so richly presented in the features of these revelation letters. You and I remember that in the book of 1 John, the very source of the Antichrists were those who did not remain true to the doctrine of God. What a sadness. What a great sadness. The church at Philadelphia The church, the others that we see in these lists, were reminded about being steadfast and true to the Word of God. I would submit that that would be a statement that we hope could be a matter of commendation. Could Jesus say, You, Pippin, have been faithful to my Word. Continue in that way of steadfastness. I trust and I hope that would be what He'd say. But there's no doubt that there are many congregations of individuals in our world today for whom that could not be said. You'll notice, what about something else? The next matter that seemingly was so important because it occurred in so many of these letters. One word, lukewarm. It may be that too could be a very great problem. No doubt our mind races to one congregation, in particular the church at Laodicea. In Revelation 3, verses 14 and following, we are given an extensive description of a congregation at Laodicea. And we all remember it well. I'd like to ask you to notice some of the language the Lord Himself used. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. The church at Laodicea, you might notice carefully with me that they were blessed in a number of ways. They were financially wealthy, they were, in fact, blessed with a number of resources and opportunities. But the central matter that takes center stage, they were lukewarm. They weren't cold, but they weren't hot either. You and I recognize that there is a a usage of words that reminds us that God has a desire that, of course, we be hot for Him. Hot brings with it the thought of intense energy. It brings us the thought of enthusiasm and vigor and enthusiasm and labor. And how often the Scriptures remind us of that statement on the part of God. In Matthew 6, verse 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. To seek first the kingdom of God, and yet we find in the midst of that, this congregation at Laodicea was lukewarm. Have you ever thought about the details of what it means to be lukewarm? We understand that the person that's hot is vigorous and active in faith, a person who is devoted, confident, and dedicated to God. And why? Maybe we can identify easily what coldness means. Don't attend the services near as much as should. A person who's on the fringes at best. An individual for whom religion is really not all that important. If it's convenient, maybe I'll participate, but not otherwise. What does it mean to be lukewarm? Not cold, but not hot either. A person who is going through the motions of religion, perhaps. An individual who, again, is there sometimes at the services, but not nearly all the time. A person for whom Wednesday night's just too inconvenient. A person for whom Sunday night, just more often than not, is not a person that you can expect to be present. A person who, you see, has interests. A person who has pursuits that take him or her elsewhere. Religion, you see, for that individual described as lukewarm, and I would invite you to notice the Lord's reaction. It made Jesus sick. It made Him sick. I will spew thee out of my mouth. You and I know what a picture of a person throwing up is like. It's almost sickening, isn't it, to think of witnessing it. Maybe you and I have seen a child that's sick, or maybe you and I have unfortunately been in circumstances like that. Jesus said, this makes me sick. Lukewarmness. Either be on fire for me or give up claims of faith at all. The Lord told that congregation in Laodicea, you might be be wealthy and you might have many other resources, but you make me sick. I would ask you to notice in light of those things, that sickness that comes before us in verses like this one helps us see, doesn't it, that in many ways what a great harm is brought to the cause of Christ by individuals that are lukewarm. After all, if a person is on fire for the Lord, that's easy to witness. And it's easy to see the directive of that person's life. And that person that's cold, you know where he stands. He doesn't make any claim to religion. But that person that's lukewarm, he's not faithfully serving the Lord, but yet he's not distant from Him either. It's just that he has enough religion to make himself partially sometimes comfortable. And that's about it. That's a shame. That kind of religion won't be enough to get anybody to heaven. The church at Laodicea itself in lukewarmness was told, if you don't repent, you will not come over and live with me. Lukewarmness, we must be careful about that, mustn't we? In an age of materialism where it seems we're so surrounded by a gratification of our selfish pleasures, may we never be given to lukewarmness spiritually. The church at Laodicea, as you close that slide, reminds us of lessons found otherwise in Scripture, doesn't it? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all there's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lusts thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. 1 John 2, 15-17. Lukewarmness, what a serious issue. But that matter of lukewarmness perhaps challenges us to ask about other issues that could be a problem and a plague for any of us. Aside from issues of doctrine and matters of lukewarmness, I would ask you to notice a serious, serious statement made to the church at Sardis. In Revelation 3 verses 1 to 5, we have a church and it was specifically told, you have a name that you live, but you are dead. A name that you live, but you are dead. If you can imagine, as far as we know, there were no church buildings per se in the first century. They met in houses and homes and other structures. But you can imagine, this place had the right name on the door. But inside they were dead. What a tragedy. The liveliness built upon the faith of Christ was gone. Now, might you and I use a quick moment to make this statement? To make that statement about the church at Sardis... Please highlight with me the following in verse number 4 of Revelation 3. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments. Here was a church that wasn't as it ought to be, but thanks being to God, there were still some individuals in that church that were faithful and true and strong. They had a few names still in Sardis that had not defiled their garments. You and I can appreciate today then that a congregation... Sadly enough, might be dead, but there could still be some faithful individuals in it whose faith is directed as it ought to be, whose direction in life was built upon the foundation of that which is the unassailable Word of God. The fact of them being dead, doesn't it highlight for us the challenge of what rested before the church in Sardis? They needed to have a resurrection. You and I know that word means to come back from the dead, They in Sardis needed to be resurrected, at least by and large, many of them. And sometimes that could be characteristic of individuals today. What about your faith? Is it long since lying in the embers of near-deadness? Was there a time when you were excited, enthusiastic, and filled with fervor for the service of God, but that isn't true anymore? If so, you're like some of the people in Sardis. You'll notice again what the Lord said to them in verse 5. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. You need to enjoy a resurrection. Reignite the flames of service to the master. And as you do that, you will overcome and be able to enjoy the greatness of heaven forevermore. You might observe, in addition to that, the statement of the open door. That was what was used as a lesson text as it was read in our hearing by Joe a little earlier today. In Revelation 3, beginning in verse 7, interestingly enough, the congregation at Philadelphia. That letter is reasonably brief. I'd like to ask you to notice as we read it. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy and he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. The church at Philadelphia had a little strength. Does that indicate that perhaps in number they were few? Perhaps. But at the least, we can say this. The fact that they were few in number did not by any means detract from their faithfulness. Because of all the seven churches, Philadelphia was the highest commended. The Lord said, I've put before you an open door. Although you're small, or although at least you're weak, you appreciate the fact that no man can shut that door. I've put it before you, and no man can close it. And what I close, no man can open I strongly suspect that that's another one of the things that the Lord would say to the church at Pippin. I've put before you an open door. There are opportunities and there are things that can be done in service. No man can close those doors. Are you and I individually? Are you and I as a congregation using the opportunities that God puts before us? Or are we too selfish and look inward? This congregation in Philadelphia was such that it reminds us grandly, doesn't it, about those open doors that sometimes God puts before us. Paul, it seems, was keenly aware of them. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse number 9, he even made note of the fact, "...there's an open door before me." But by the same token, he commented that there were many adversaries. There will be opponents." There will be possible frustrations and difficulties, but it doesn't detract from the open door. We had a business meeting not too long back at which ideas were discussed in terms of the work of this congregation. We prayed to God for His wisdom and His aid with us for these things, and we trust in the coming year that those open doors, by the blessing of God, we can pursue them. We can utilize the talents and abilities He's given us in ways to help bring others to Christ. I've set before you an open door. Isn't it amazing to think about opportunities that God sometimes makes available? It is with all that in mind. A final note of commendation. Thou holdest fast my name. I'm sure that if the Lord were to say that to we at Pippin, it'd make us feel pretty good, wouldn't it? Of all things he might say, Thou holdest fast my name. It is the following. You'll appreciate that in Revelation 2.13, that statement was made to the church at Pergamos. Now that church had its difficulties and later they were detailed. But at least it could be said at the outset of that commendation, You've held fast my name. I'll use that as a thought to close the lesson, not only congregationally but individually. Are you holding fast His name? Do others round about know that you're a Christian? Do they appreciate the fact that you walk to a different drummer, if you please? That your calling is, of course, in heaven, that your citizenship is not here. These churches, these seven churches of Asia, received all of these letters and when there were matters to be corrected, the Lord demanded that they repent, that they make their necessary changes. It is true that as we close this lesson in summary, the book of Revelation has begun with the letters to the seven churches of Asia, to the church at Pippin. We've studied today about things, as you can appreciate, I've tried to quickly summarize with those somber reflections. Faithfulness. Obedience, true to the things of God. If you find yourself having left your first love like they of Ephesus, if you find yourself spiritually dead like some at Sardis, if you find yourself lukewarm like some at Laodicea, why not make a change today? But if, like Philadelphia, you are faithful but an open door's before you, realize by the assurance and confidence of God you can be faithful until death. And that's what was told the church at Smyrna. Be thou faithful until death, and I'll give thee a crown of life. Today it might be that there's one or more in the audience that is not right with God. Why not make it right today? The plan of salvation that the Lord Himself has given is a plan that demands. You believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His name as the only begotten Son of God, and then humbly and submissively be baptized. In so doing, your sins are washed away. A new creature in Christ you become. If we could assist you in that today, we'd be happy to do it. If you have become a Christian at some former time, but some of these issues we've studied today has become problems in your life, make it right today. The Lord doesn't want anybody to be lost. Jesus gave His life and shed His blood that you might be saved. Why not come back to Him? Remember that Ephesus were told... Come back to your first love. If we could help you do that today, we'd pray with you and for you. We would only ask you to let us know the way we can help. Why not do it now while together we stand and sing?